preface in Chapter 1 of Catherine von Bora, Dr. Martin Luther's Wife. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dory Smith. Catherine von Bora, Dr. Martin Luther's Wife by Armin Stein. Translated by E. A. Endlich. Author's Preface. It has been my purpose in Catherine von Bora to picture in the peaceful quiet of his domestic happiness the man whose influence so largely shaped the course of public events. The undertaking has not been altogether an easy one, for while history flows in a copious stream regarding the reformer himself, it gives but meager information as to the great man's wife, the humble, modest woman who never thrust herself forward nor sought any personal advantage from her husband's greatness but remained contentedly in the background, glad to do him service and to enrich her own heart from the abundance of his spiritual riches. Only occasional fragments give us glimpses of Catherine's life, and out of these I will endeavor to form a complete picture. The fact that Luther is so absorbing a personality gives rise to a further difficulty. The biography of Catherine von Bora often insensibly becomes that of Luther himself, and the author pauses to ask himself, Am I writing of Catherine or of Luther? I can only repeat that it is my purpose in this book to paint Luther's domestic life and therefore Dr. Martin, as the head of his household, may fitly play a leading part. As has already been stated, the historical notices regarding Catherine von Bora are very scant. In addition to the laborious compilation by Walsh, published in refutation of popish calumnies, there are but two learned works upon the subject, Hoffman's Catherine von Bora, or Luther as husband and father, and A Life of Catherine von Bora by W. Bestie. Besides these, I would mention a concise and popular sketch written by Muir, the Luther biographer. It has been my endeavor so to utilize the material here gathered that our people may learn to know the wife of its greatest man, not by name only, but as her husband's helpmeet in the truest sense of the word, as a pattern of domestic virtue and as a pearl among women. Book First, The Maiden Chapter One, A Conspiracy. It was the evening of a clear, warm March day. The sun, sinking behind the distant hills, sent its parting rays over the earth, tinting hills and valleys, forests and meadows, with golden light. The evening mist was rising and covering with a filmy veil the tender spring flowers, the snowdrops and violets, from the chilly night air. The windows in the western wing of the convent of Nibshin shone with a ruddy glow, and the face of the young nun, who stood by an open casement, seemed transfigured by the strange light, while the tears in her eyes quivered like drops of liquid gold. With longing sadness, her glance rested upon the landscape, upon the peasants returning to their homes after the day's work, and upon the children playing their merry games on the village green. The young nun was a pleasing, graceful figure. Her features were too irregular to be strictly beautiful, and the pallor of her skin made her appear older than she was. But her face possessed the rare charm of sympathy. Clear, thoughtful eyes and delicately curved lips betrayed a deep, rich inner life and a sensitive heart, while the firmly rounded chin bespoke self-respect and decision of character. An expression of gentle dignity lay upon the arched forehead. There was in her manner a certain high-bred nobility, the stamp of true womanliness, and her movements were full of grace. Her cell was narrow and gloomy, yet the skillful hands of its occupant had so disposed the scanty furniture and the saints' pictures upon the walls, adding here and there little touches of color, 
that the room had lost its bare appearance. The abbess herself was fond of visiting this cell and often said, I cannot understand, Sister Catherine, why your cell is so home-like. One feels here that it is far pleasanter to come than to go. As the nun stood by the window, her tearful eyes rested upon the calm beauty of the early springtime, while her mind was lost in gloomy reveries. At her feet lay a piece of costly violet-colored velvet, which had dropped from her hands, and upon the window ledge were tangled masses of white and yellow silk. Rousing herself from her dreams, she hastily gathered up the velvet, sat down upon a stool, and resumed her embroidery. It was an altar cloth for the convent church. The design was, two palm branches crossed, and above the legend, Ave Maria. The words were already finished, but the branches were merely outlined in coarse stitches. Her slender fingers moved wearily over the velvet, and her head bent low over her work, for the last scant rays of daylight were falling into the cell. Suddenly, the heavy, iron-mounted door was opened, and a younger nun appeared. "'What is this, Sister Catherine?' she exclaimed in surprise. "'Still at your work? Pray spare your eyes. But,' she continued, coming nearer, "'why are you so far behindhand? What will the abbess say?' Tomorrow, at high mass, the altar was to wear its new draperies. Catherine looked up with a dreary smile. I am angry with my own heart, because it is so reluctant to obey the commands of our superior. My needle moves slowly, and what was once a pleasure has become a burden. Oh, Sister Elizabeth, a change has come over my soul since the voice of the monk of Wittenberg penetrated these walls. Elizabeth glanced anxiously toward the door. Speak softly, Sister Catherine. These walls have ears. She pushed the bolt, and drawing a stool beside Catherine, she sat down, saying gently, Light the lamp, Sister. I will help you. How kind you are, dear Elizabeth, exclaimed Catherine with a grateful smile. But let us wait. It is time for Vespers. As she spoke, the little bell was heard, summoning the nuns to evening prayers. Then followed the meager supper in the refectory. Both nuns were of noble lineage, for the Cistercian convent at Marienthron at Nipschen received no others. The younger one was Elizabeth von Kennitz, who had taken the veil but a year and a half ago. Her fresh, rose-tinted skin had not yet been blanched by the cellar-like atmosphere of the convent, nor her cheerful spirit crushed by the oppressive discipline of the order. Her ingenuous, childlike disposition had won the love of the sisters, and even the venerable abbess had been seen to smile at her merry sallies. Her friend was a descendant of the distinguished family von Bora, richer in noble ancestors than in worldly goods. She was an orphan and knew but one member of her family to be living, her brother, Hans von Bora. She had reached her 24th year and had been in the convent since her childhood, having taken the final vows at the age of 15. An hour later, we find them again in Catherine's cell. The copper lamp was lighted, and they sat down together to finish the embroidery, which was to be used at the celebration on the morrow. "'How swiftly your fingers fly, dear Elizabeth,' said Catherine, "'and how contentedly your eyes rest upon your work. You happy child! Life is all a fair mayday to you. Doubts and temptations are all unknown to you. You're satisfied within these gloomy walls, and to your childlike faith they seem to lead straight to heaven. I, too, was once happy and contented here.' although I grieved sorely at leaving my father's house. Ah, it is hard to part forever from all that is dear to us, and to hear the convent gates close behind us like the lid of a coffin, to be dead to the outer world, never again to receive the kiss of love or the greeting of friendship. But seeing that it must needs be, 
for my parents with their small means could not provide a suitable refuge for their daughter, I overcame my sorrow and, with confident hope, knocked at these doors of which I was told that they were the doors of heaven. And truly, it seemed as though a breath from heaven greeted me as I crossed the threshold. To be sheltered from the temptations of an evil world and from the cares of this life, to be surrounded by the odor of incense and the sound of holy music, to be guided at every step by spiritual counsel, to be able to labor unceasingly for the welfare of my soul and fix my thoughts upon the life to come. All this persuaded me that I had entered the courts of heaven, and I remembered my parents daily with hearty thanks for their kindness in bringing me hither. Now I see it all in a different light. This gloomy house, which I regarded as the abode of true life, is a grave in which I am buried alive. The monk of Wittenberg has opened my eyes, and I see that all my pious exercises are but an idle, fruitless endeavor. Luther's words have startled me out of my dreams. But he is right. It was but a dream, an imaginary sanctity. My heart bears me witness to the truth of his teaching. For God's peace, which I hoped to win through my devotions and good works, that I have never found. I was taught that only in the convent true piety had its abiding place. I have learned this to be false, and I am certain that those who live in the world can serve God and be saved as well as we. Yes, if we who enter here could leave behind us our sinful heart, but that goes with us and prepares us trials of which the world does not dream. It would seem as though here everything were calculated to lift the soul above earthly things and to fill it with the strength of heavenly life, but in reality the dreary monotony merely deadens the spirit. Beyond these walls, Life shines in bright and happy colors, but here all is gray. There, men rejoice in the lovely springtime. They watch for the summer, which causes the budding germs to flower. They greet the autumn with its ripening fruits. And again, when winter comes, the weary body hails the rest it brings. Here, we scarcely know when the violets are blooming or when the grapes are gathered or when the snow is falling. All seasons, all days are alike in this dull life if indeed it can be called a life. There, men go forth each morning to their day's work, and it is a pleasure to them, a blessing, both to body and soul. Their food gives them strength, and their sleep refreshes them. But our souls and bodies are weakened by this pious idleness. If our convent were in a city where we could nurse the sick, clothe the naked, comfort the sorrowing, that would fill the void in our life and vary its monotony. Ah, Sister Elizabeth, I fear I cannot longer endure the conflict. My strength is failing me, and I feel the blood coursing more and more languidly through my veins. She hid her face in her hands. A deep silence succeeded, which Elizabeth did not venture to break. Her tender heart was filled with pity at the sight of Catherine's misery. She had listened with deep interest, her glowing eyes fixed upon her friend's lips. Strange feelings were awakened within her. Now she rose in great agitation and grasped Catherine's hand. Sister, has God bidden you to speak thus to me? Your words have torn the veil from my eyes and roused thoughts which hitherto slumbered in my soul. You think me happy, Catherine, and you are right, for God has given me a cheerful heart. But yet I am not the trusting child that accepts with unquestioning confidence the ordinances of the church and the rules of our order. Do you suppose that Luther's words have failed to touch me? Since I read his book on monastic vows, and on the Babylonian captivity, a thorn has entered my conscience, which torments and terrifies me. My mind is not clear like yours to discern the needs of my soul. My trouble has been undefined, but you have put it into words. 
Now I know what I want, and I am indeed unhappy. She threw herself upon Catherine's neck and wept aloud. Catherine loosened the clinging arms, and wringing her hands in distress, she exclaimed, Woe is me! What have I done? Oh, that I had kept silence and borne my sorrows alone. Elizabeth dried her tears and said with a gentle caress, Do not grieve, dear Catherine. It is indeed painful to have one's eyes opened by force, but is it not better to know the truth than to continue in error? After a long and scrutinizing look into her friend's face, Catherine suddenly leaned forward so that her lips touched Elizabeth's ear. Elizabeth, you do not know all my trouble. The young nun's eyes anxiously questioned hers. She continued, You will not betray me, Elizabeth. I have a secret, I and seven others. Trust me, said Elizabeth. Catherine drew still nearer and whispered, Do you know what has happened at Grimma? Elizabeth nodded. How should I not know? The gospel has been preached there openly since Luther proclaimed the truth from the pulpit of the town church. It is not that I mean, Catherine shook her head. We have received tidings that in the past week the monastery of the Holy Cross was deserted by its monks. Elizabeth started. What do you say? It is not possible. Catherine continued quietly. These are wonderful times. All signs point to the beginning of a new life. Not at Grima only, but elsewhere also the cloisters have opened their gates after Luther had uttered his hephatha. Sister Elizabeth, if our gates were opened, would you go or stay? A deep crimson dyed Elizabeth's face and a shiver ran through her body. Sister, I believe I should go, but, she added drearily, who will open them? You know how bitterly the abbess hated Luther and how she rails against him? A shadow fell upon Catherine's face, and a heavy sigh rose from her breast. That is my sorrow also, but perhaps the abbess may be forced to yield, whether she will or not. I do not understand you, said Elizabeth in alarm. Again, Catherine leaned over and whispered, Eight of the sisters have entered upon a secret compact. They have written letters to their parents and kinsfolk, imploring them, for God's sake, to pity their condition and release them from their imprisonment. They say that since they have learned monastic vows to be opposed to the teachings of the Holy Scripture, they should imperil their souls by continuing to strive after an imaginary sanctity. Elizabeth's eyes were opened wide. She clutched Catherine's arm and asked eagerly, Who are they, these eight? Catherine answered, They are Magdalene von Staupitz, Veronica and Margaret von Seschau, Lenita von Gohlis, Eva von Gross, Eva and Margaret von Schoenfeld, I am the eighth. Let me be the ninth, pleaded Elizabeth. If you go, I cannot stay. For a moment, Catherine's eyes scanned the young nun's face, and then she said earnestly, Dear Elizabeth, we will gladly let you share our secret, but be careful lest you arouse suspicion. Your tongue is quick, and your eyes tell tales. A sudden flush overspread Elizabeth's face. Do not fear, dear Catherine. You shall learn that I can keep silence. Far into the night, the nuns sat plying their needles and talking over their plans until at midnight the little bell again called them to their devotions. End of chapter one.